All right, well, welcome back, everyone. Now that you have heard the passage for, for today, as we are winding down our journey in the Gospel of Mark, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word this afternoon. Dear Jesus, we thank you for uh, the joy it is to be together as your family. And Lord, we thank you for your word that you have promised us is alive and it is active. Would you give us uh, humble hearts to receive what it is you want to say to us today? How you want to encourage us? How you want to challenge us? And Lord, I pray that you'll be glorified. That our eyes would be lifted up to you. That our hearts would be turned towards worship of you as we go through this incredible story today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... The first time I ever preached a sermon was uh, August 2007, I think. It was either 2007 or 8. The years are blurring together now. And uh, in all that time, I'm going to do something today that I've never, I don't think I've ever done before, and that is reference an Alanis Morissette song. So some of you might be familiar with the song Ironic, and some of you might be familiar with the, the internet journey that that song has taken on the past few years where uh, At-home literary critics have gone online and said, uh, Alanis, these things aren't ironic that you're singing about. They're just major bummers. And so people have kind of gone on and picked the song apart and said, this is an irony. You know, at best it's cosmic irony, but really it's just kind of like sad tragedies. But I was reading something recently about it and someone said, or is that the point? Has she pulled a big fast one on all of us and the whole song? answers the refrain of, isn't it ironic that I'm singing a song about things that aren't actually ironic? Mark, the gospel writer of Mark, is an excellent, excellent irony user. And today we're going to see that in, and it's undeniable. No one's going to be writing on Reddit forums about Mark's use of iron, irony. But we're going to see it intentionally uh, today because this, this passage is, is quite upside down. And Mark, as an author, it's brilliant. He's, he has it full of irony that, that he's using to help us see that the passage is upside down. And in fact, what, what appears to be tremendous weakness from Jesus is actually him giving strength in love. And so through the, through the passage today, as we unpack it and, and work through it a bit, um, what, basically what I want to do is I want to remind us that following Jesus, being fully alive in Christ, is not a, a matter of you or I being internally strong within ourselves. But rather, it's about relying on the strength of Jesus. And the incredible good news is that we have access to his strength. That's in part what it means to be fully alive, is that he has given us his strength. When we are weak, he is strong. There are times, uh, maybe you can relate to this, when I am fully aware of how, just how different my heart is, for example, compared to the heart of God. Even if I'm scrolling social media, which I've tried not to do very much lately because I heard someone say that, you know, Twitter is just where celebrities yell at you and Facebook is where your friends yell at you. 
sometimes I feel that, and it just brings out a bad side of me. So I tend not to go on it. But even there, I can see these little glimpses of like, my heart is so different than the heart of Jesus. And I think often when we look at that gap or we are reminded of that gap, we can sometimes look at that gap and simply despair. When the invitation of the gospel is not to just sit there and despair, but to actually depend on God in that gap. In other words, when you can't do what you saw him do, and there's a gap, so often we look at it and we think, man, I can't, I can't do that. I can't jump across that. Forget it. Maybe you tried to jump across that gap once and you fell and it really hurt. I don't want to do that. I can't. That's what Jesus did. I know what I'm capable of. Like, what do I do with this gap? And so often we despair. But when we do, we're missing the gospel. When there's a gap, the invitation of the gospel is to call him into it. Call on the name of the Lord when we are weak. He is strong. Jesus, I can't. Help me. Do it through me. Lord, change me. You see, our hope of, of being a people that look like Jesus and love like Jesus and actually being his ambassadors to our neighborhoods and our campuses, that, that hope isn't contingent upon our strength, but it's actually contingent upon our willingness to call Jesus into our weakness. Don't despair, rather depend on him. And I really think the story today is going to speak volumes, or I hope it does, about the security of our hope in God's strength, in the strength of Jesus and not ours. And so today, we're kind of put the story in context in case you're just kind of jumping in with us. Mark has really slowed down the Easter story, and we're looking at it in great detail. And so what we saw uh, a few weeks ago was Jesus was arrested by an angry mob. He was then put on trial. He was betrayed by all of his disciples, or sorry, he was, the disciples scattered. Some betrayed him. And now this story right now, he's gone through all that in the same day. And now he's being taken towards the cross. This is Good Friday, the morning of Good Friday. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to look at three things. Number one, Jesus took on our weakness. Number two, Jesus took on our suffering. And thirdly, we can take on his strength. Jesus took on our weakness. Jesus took on our suffering. We can take on his strength. So let's jump right in here. Number one, Jesus took on our weakness. One of the reasons we, whenever we started the Gospel of Mark, I forget exactly when it was, but one of the reasons we wanted to go through Mark is because this gospel in particular uh, shows us a lot about the humanity, the human side of Jesus. It's really highlighted. And in fact, it's, it's really critical that we understand that first, Jesus was, when he was here on earth, he was fully God and fully man. He was God with flesh on. God became man. It's, it's really important that we, that we understand that and we trust that but also that we consider why that's important. Like, what does that mean? Why, what are the implications 
or at least some of them, of what that means. And Mark has, has been showing us that, and it's, it's really evident in today's passage. And here's one reason why the humanity of Jesus is really important. Because the gospel says that he was able to identify with our weakness. Because Jesus was God who took on human flesh, he was able to identify with our weakness. Think about it for a minute. Infinite God took on the limitations of physical humanity. God Almighty subjected himself to a body that could feel pain, that got tired. You know, the book of Isaiah says, the Lord does not grow tired and weary, but when Jesus became man after a long day, he had to sleep. Jesus took on physical body limitations. He shared our humanity. Therefore, he knows our weakness, he knows our plight, he knows the fragility of our existence. Even just think about the 12 hours or so surrounding the events that we're reading about today, the beginning of Good Friday. Think about all that he has gone through, just, just physically and emotionally. Think about it for a second. So Thursday night was the Last Supper with his disciples. Emotion, then he goes through the emotional drain of Judas's betrayal. Right after that, he spent the entire night in prayer. He didn't sleep. He was up all night, wrestling in prayer, surrendering to the Father. Then the disciples flee. Then Jesus is put on trial in front of a screaming crowd of hundreds of people. He faces questioning by Pilate. And we know from our story today, that was all before nine in the morning. Now look at verse 21. This is really important. Verse 21 of our story today. It says that they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of, Son of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Can, can, we under can we see what Mark's doing here? One, just one quick sentence. He's helping us see what's going on. The God who created the land and the sea could not carry the tree of his own cross. He was exhausted. He was in tremendous pain already. He knows our weakness. Isaiah 53 verse 3, the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God's spirit, was speaking ahead to this promised Messiah. And listen to verse 3 of Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Church, he knows. He took it on so he knows. Now this word that's used here for he knew what sickness was is, is a very intimate kind of knowing. It's often used in the Old Testament to refer to a husband and a wife's intimacy. They knew each other. He knew intimately the fragility of human experience and our pain. He knows sickness. He knows weakness. Can you hear that today and be encouraged by it today? He understands your limitations because he became like us. He became so intimately associated with our human 
experience and condition that he identified with it. It became his. The God of the universe stepped into our experience. So what happens to us happened to him. Do you know that? Can you rest in it? And I also want us to see that this was very intentional. He knows and he knows fully. Look at verse 22. Again, Mark, very intentional. Verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Seems like a random descriptive verse here, but it's very important. Wine mixed with myrrh was a small offer of mercy that would be given to those who were being crucified. Essentially, it could act like a sedative. It would dull the senses. It was a bit of a a painkiller, so to speak, at least in some fashion. Now, when most of us perhaps wouldn't blame Jesus in that moment for taking what was offered to him, he refused it. Why is this important? He willingly faced everything that was happening and is about to happen, and he willingly faced it with all of his faculties available to him. Again, it might seem insignificant, but it is so important. He had no intention of escaping this suffering and this identification with us, or even dulling it. Jesus took on our weakness. What happens to us happened to him. He knows of your weariness and your exhaustion. He knows of your worry. He knows of your pain and how distracting it can be. He has experienced it. Do you know that your Savior knows? And can you trust in that today? Hebrews 4, the author there says this in verse 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When in pain, do you pray knowing that he knows? Do you intercede for others, trusting that he identifies with our frailty, our our weaknesses? Church, when you're carrying each other's burdens in your simple church family, as family, can you first bring those burdens to Jesus who empathizes with us? Can you, as a family, carry your burdens to, not just to each other as our own little many saviors, but actually to Jesus. Point one another to Christ. He knows. Remind each other. He knows. I know it's difficult. I know you're walking through the valley we just sang about, but he's there because he actually experienced it himself. Can we teach one another to call on the name of the Lord that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need? He became like us. Number one, he became like us. He took on our weakness. And because he did that, okay, here's number two, his identification with us brought him suffering. And in many ways, this is Mark's main point, I believe, of the passage that we have today. So number two, Jesus took on our suffering. Jesus took on our suffering. Obviously, the past week or so, uh, spent a lot of time in the story, thinking about it, meditating on it, talking to Rachel about it, as is now well known. Uh, Often our walks about midweek go back to the passage that is coming up for Sunday. And the more I 
thought about this, this part of the Good Friday story that often, to be honest, I haven't really reflected on too much before. This scene is almost, it's almost too overwhelming for me. Like, Jesus is so incredible in this entire, this entire thing for us. Because we, we talk a lot about the physical pain of the, of the crucifixion, and rightly so. It was absolutely brutal. But the Messiah, Jesus, needed to do more than just die. He needed to take the, the brunt of sin. Like, the Messiah needed to take the full force on himself of our wickedness and our cruelty. This is why Jesus didn't dull the pain. He didn't try to escape and just get through the cross. No, he needed to receive the full thrust of evil. And instead of retaliating, instead of getting revenge in the moment, he needed to absorb it. Because he needed to unleash a new power up against evil, the power of forgiveness through sacrificial love. And this, Mark says, is exactly what he did when he took on our suffering. Let me show you in a couple of these little, these little scenes. Mark is almost like a movie director, kind of bringing us different scenes. Firstly, so this would be 2A, if you're taking notes. I'm going from one point to multiple. So 2A, Jesus subjected himself to ruthless mocking. Ruthless mocking. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and they called the whole company together. Now, pause for a second. This would have been somewhere between 300 and 600 soldiers. 300 to 600 soldiers for one man. And they dressed him in a purple robe the color of royalty. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Why? Well, they wanted him to be recognized for who he was. And later, Mark tells us, in front of him, as he's taking his final breath, they wanted to divide up his clothes amongst themselves. Jesus subjected himself, secondly, to be, to slander. Slander, a malicious or false report. Look at verse 26 and 27. The inscription of the charge written against Jesus was the king of the Jews, and they placed it on a sign above his head on the cross. Now, the description was true, the king of the Jews, but are you starting to see some of the irony here? But they were using it as a, as a label for why he was being killed. This is why he was a criminal in their minds, the king of the Jews. And if that wasn't clear enough, Mark says in verse 27, they crucified Jesus between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus in the middle, as if to say, here are three rebellious criminals and the one in the middle is the center 
of it all. Can you hear the irony of what they're doing and what they're saying, but what the truth actually is? Jesus is in the center, the middle, the most important of it all. And thirdly, to see, Jesus subjected himself to insult and ridicule. Ridicule, speech or action intended to cause contemptuous laughter at a person or thing. He was insulted and provoked by onlookers, people passing by the scene who had no idea of the story, but just thought they would offer their opinions. And insulted by religious leaders who should have known better. Look at verse 29. Those who passed by were yelling insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And Mark adds, and even those who were crucified with him taunted him. He took all of it. He took it all on and he suffered terribly. Now, the soldiers, the religious leaders, the criminals, even the crowds passing by, they all believed that this suffering that he was experiencing meant that he had clearly failed as this Messiah, as this savior. Their thought was, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Because to them, a suffering savior was, was, was inconceivable. It didn't make any sense at all. Their logic was, what, like, we are tearing you apart, Jesus. There's nothing left of you. How can you be some mighty king, some savior? Their thought was, we are grinding you into the ground and you are doing nothing. You cannot be a savior. You see, they claimed that they would believe that he was Messiah if he could or would stop all of what was happening and save himself. But the irony is that the Messiah needed to be one who would not stop all of this from happening and instead absorb it and save us and not himself. Jesus was made like us. He'd suffered for us so that he could forgive us and make us new. And you see, Mark wants us to see that Jesus was the suffering savior and that suffering was in fact the entire point. And here's why, because a savior that doesn't suffer cannot forgive. Do you see what Mark's saying? It wasn't just that Jesus needed to die for us. He needed to suffer for us. Think about it. I was meditating on this story and I was thinking like, like I was worshiping in, as I was thinking about it because I was thinking to myself, I don't want a God who would have come down from that cross, who would stoop down to their level of mockery, humiliation, insults to try to play that game. That's what I would do. <laughs> That's what you and I would do, and that's the problem. You and I couldn't stop the cycle of sin. It was vicious. 
So if there is going to be one who could save us, who could reverse the wheel of sin and death and destruction, that one would need to do something altogether different, which is exactly what Jesus did. He absorbed the wickedness that was thrown at him, and he paid the price for it. He needed to. Jesus needed to defeat evil with a new kind of power. And we all understand this to be true, right? Forgiveness comes with a cost. It always does. When you are wronged, either the person who wronged you needs to pay or you need to pay. You need to absorb the cost. The only way to actually disarm and transform a mocking heart or a heart that wants to give insults or, or kick someone when they're down, is to receive the mocking and not actually retaliate, but take it on and give love back in return. Jesus was absorbing all this hatred so that he could respond in love. Only that can stop the cycle and truly transform a wicked, sinful heart. In other words, they were right. Jesus was being torn apart, but he was doing it intentionally. So that through forgiveness, this new force, this new kind of love, he could bring things back together again. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. You see, this whole scene was victory and not defeat. So where does that leave us, though? Well, I think we're kind of left with the same question that the religious leaders and the crowd faced, which is pretty simply this. What do we believe of a suffering Messiah? What do we make of that? Because you see, their logic was, okay, if Jesus can do what, what we would do in his position, then we'll believe him. Therefore, suffering meant he failed. But the whole point was that the Messiah would do precisely the thing that no one else could, forgive. Do we believe that he is the Messiah, not in spite of the suffering, but because he suffered for us? And specifically, I don't just mean believe in like a big picture theoretical sense, because I know that many who are tuning in would believe that. But I, be, but I mean believe in the sense of trusting in his strength enough to call on this Savior to show up where we can't, to depend on him in the gap. Do we believe this such that it translates to our faith in calling the Lord to, into the gap to depend on him and our weakness? Which leads us to number three in the land here. We can take on his strength. So where does this leave us today? Well, remember that Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't the end of something, it was the beginning of something new that God was doing. He was forming a new people, a new humanity. Jesus was the first one, the first new human. And he was forming this new humanity into a new family. Now, all of us Christians, those who have been made new by Jesus' work on the cross, we are now together as this new family, as the church. People who now can and are called to love like he does, and persevere like Jesus does. That is the church today, which of course then includes us, our expression of it, Lift Church. That's our family. This new family, by the blood of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, tr being transformed, called to love like he does, and persevere like he does. 
Now I know, I'm, I'm gonna go on a limb here and say that you're with me when I say, I wanna love like Jesus does. And I'm also gonna go out on a limb and say that you're with me when I say, I wanna persevere like Jesus does. I wanna love like Jesus does. But like I alluded to earlier, if we're honest, we can also recognize the wickedness that was shown to Jesus is actually in our own hearts too. In other words, we are, we, we are the soldiers. Without Jesus changing us, we are the soldiers. We are the religious leaders, the criminals and the onlookers. What they did to Jesus, we do to one another. We take joy when others fall. We feel vindicated when we're right and those that we're against are wrong. We shed our guilt by finding someone worse than us. Like think about the criminals. The criminals on the cross were insulting Jesus. Why? They considered him more guilty than they. Is that not the human condition? Is that not in our own hearts too? We realize that we're more like everyone else in the story than we are like Jesus. We're aware of the gap that can often exist between where I am and where the love of Jesus is. And yet, we want to love like him. I also want to persevere like Jesus does. And I, and I know that our church does too, which is incredible. In fact, if you're newer to things or even just need to be reminded, let me remind you, our, our church as a family, we really believe that every follower of Jesus has a unique position and ability to model Jesus and to disciple others who are just behind you on that journey. We really believe that, that every person has a unique ability to do that and position to do that. If Jesus is your Lord, if you're following him, then however long you've been doing that, however, uh, whatever stage of life you're in or whatever level of understanding of scripture you may have, right now you can invite others to follow Jesus with you. You can model for them the pursuit of Jesus. You can train them, you can empower them. Those that are just behind you in the journey, that one of the things that is amazing about our church, we believe that, that you can do that for others. People, you can disciple people that I can't and vice versa. Now the thing about that is that sometimes, often maybe, in that journey, we can get really weary we can get really drained emotionally. We can feel quite insecure and think that we're not good enough to disciple. We're not good enough to, to lead anybody else. At other times, maybe we just want to escape and go do something totally different. Live off the grid, be a postman in some faraway land where it never snows. But Jesus calls us to persevere. Not to toughen us up, but for the people who are just behind us. This new humanity, this church, is called to love like he does and persevere like he does. And so we are often aware of the gap then, of like where my heart's at, where my, my strength is at, and where the heart of Jesus is at. So what do we do in that gap? What do we do when we see that, when we experience it, when we feel it? And what do we encourage those that we're discipling to do? Well, based on what we see in God's word today, church, my call is quite simply this, for us to look up 
to lift up our eyes to see Jesus again on that cross and see the invitation to depend on him instead of standing at the gap and despairing. The invitation is to depend on the one who took on our weakness, took on our suffering, and call him into the gap. Church, because he identified with us so that through faith we could identify with him and his strength. This is the truth. You and I can't love on our own the way that Jesus does, but he can love through us. It's the power of God's spirit. It's the fruit of God's spirit that does the work. Not the fruit of my life or my flesh or my spirit, but the fruit of God's spirit working through us. Can our faith in Jesus translate to dependency on what he can do in us, not just simply relying on our own strength? And church, this is what you Every one of us, every follower of Jesus can model for those that you are leading towards Christ. You can model dependency on him. You can model that. Dependency on Jesus. They will see it in the way that you pray and you invite God into situations. They will see it in the way that you come before his word with a humility and, and, and a hunger. Jesus, I need to know what you're saying to me. They will see it in the way that you rely on the Spirit to cultivate grace, patience, and forgiveness. They'll see it in the way that you talk about God's Spirit as the one who's led you through challenging situations, through difficult circumstances, and who's led you to root in, in family even when that's complicated or difficult. They'll see it. That's what you and I can model, dependency on Jesus. You see, he took on our weakness and our suffering to make us new, a new family. Not suddenly strong people, but those who believe that the suffering Savior is now our strength. He is the center. He is, he is the middle. He is the most important. Do you see the irony of, of the crucifixion? They put him in the middle because he was the most important. Well, of course he is. He is. This is what we can model to those that God has entrusted to us. Dependency, not despair. Let's pray. Jesus, we see you today. We see you in your glory. Well, while so many at the time on earth did not see you in glory, but saw you in defeat, saw you as a threat, Lord, we see what you were doing the incredible sacrifice that you are giving for us. We acknowledge it. We confess it. Lord, though the soldiers mocked worship to you, we are led to true worship to you. Though they put a crown of thorns on your head as a joke, we, no, we, Lord, we put the crown of glory on your head because you, Lord, are our Savior. And we thank you that you took the full force of sin and wickedness so that you might actually begin a process of making it new, forgiving it. And Lord, we just declare as your people, as your children, those that you are making new, that you are making fully alive. We declare that we need your strength. We cannot do this alone. And Lord, we confess maybe, there's some of us confess, we'll be trying to run on our own strength. Lord, plant this word in our, deep in our hearts 
that we might be a people who call you into the gap, who depend on your strength, your power to be made perfect in our weakness. Lord, I pray that that is what others would see. That would bring you glory and praise to your name. Thank you for your word, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, as you go to gather in your simple churches and in your regions, I know many of our regions, if not all of them, have some sort of virtual thing happening right now. Uh, I hope that's an uh, awesome time. We do have a reflection question we'll put up. Um, but either way, have an amazing time in your regions and be blessed and we will see you soon.